wait a moment when everyone is, is quite in. So good morning. Uh, I'd like to continue with the theme that we started exploring last week um, on emptiness and compassion. And I had thought at first that I would just take two weeks, but I can see that um, I need more. (laughs) <laughs> so I anticipate continuing uh, also in, in two weeks. So what I'd like to do is to briefly review what we explored last week, because I know there are a number of us uh, not here last time, and to try to bring the understanding of emptiness and compassion, which can be confusing or complex, try to make it very down-to-earth by actually doing some experiential and practical explorations in the bulk of the uh, rest of the morning. And in doing so, give some practices that you could take back home into uh, the flow of daily life as a way of exploring these themes. So we saw that one of the deepest expressions of spiritual maturity in Buddhist traditions and in other traditions has been expressed as this balance between an understanding of emptiness and the manifestation of compassion. And we saw how this is expressed in different ways. In many traditions, there is this deep sense that we don't really see things accurately. Emphasizing emptiness in Buddhist tradition is one way of speaking about how we don't see so clearly. And emptiness, which I said could also be Mm, expressed in English perhaps as openness or interconnection or permeability particularly refers to the lack of a solid, independent, separate self on the one hand and separate, independent objects on the other. So it's a difficult theme because our normal conditioning and particularly our use of language and our 
navigating around um, ordinary everyday life seems to require that we construct the world into separate self here, separate self there, objects, discrete objects, and so the world becomes like a collection of separate discrete objects. But sometimes in physics would be called a Newtonian universe, you know, of separate objects operating like billiard balls in relationship to each other. <laughs> like that. And that seems like a commonsensical way to approach things, and yet in Buddhist tradition and in other traditions, the claim is that when we see most deeply, we don't see things quite like that. We see things much more as um, interdependent, interconnected, and permeable, and that not only do we come to see things that way, but we act that way, and the expression of that is love and compassion. Love doesn't make much sense if we're all a bunch of independent billiard balls. But actually love or compassion seems to express that underlying sense of interconnection and permeability and openness. And yet we often, perhaps usually, don't operate with that mature sense of emptiness and compassion. In one image in the Lotus Sutra, the Buddha says that we are as if children playing in a burning house. Because the claim is that not seeing clearly is connected with suffering. It's not just that we're on some grand holiday of illusion and we have a good time, but actually that not seeing clearly and not expressing love and compassion is related to suffering. So the uh, image is that of we are as if children in a burning house, playing and actually even experiencing painful situations, but somehow not knowing the reality of that burning house. It's a stark image, it's a strong image. And so we explored what, what does this sense of emptiness mean? You know, the, this sense of emptiness of separate self. Very confusing area to use the word emptiness as is typically used, the translation of uh, sunya, sunna or shunya in the, in the Asian languages. Very confusing. It, you know, we, probably the closest major connotation that we typically use is, is that of meaninglessness or emotional emptiness. It doesn't mean that. It means this lack of separate self. That's why I think maybe there are better words like openness, and we'll explore uh, how to understand that sense of emptiness in more down-to-earth ways in, in a moment. But it's very confusing. <clears throat> it's connected with this this Buddhist teaching of what's translated as not-self or anatta, very, very confusing. You know, as I mentioned last time, not-self and emptiness, rated one and two on the Buddhist confusion list. <laughs> you know, and I was finding, some of you have seen these um, um, internet Jewish Buddhist jokes, right? So here are two of them. <laughs> um, if there's no self, whose arthritis is this? 
Another one says, the Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, no self. So maybe we're off the hook. <laughs> and it's confusing because we use the concept of self in so many ways. You know, and we're very much influenced in this culture by psychology. And in psychology, the self is used in all sorts of ways, even the word ego which in spiritual circles often means um, egotistical or self-centered. And in psychology, it's used in quite neutral ways as well. So it's uh, you know, uh, simply to mean the principle of individuality and not necessarily egocentric. So very confusing, all this language. So, um, uh, so we have to have this, uh, I think, more grounded sense and be careful of those uh, typical connotations. And again, I think the sense of emptiness can be understood in, in the sense of openness, interconnection, permeability and on the one hand, and then also looking at where a, a sense of self becomes thick or where it tends to, um, we get in some sense fixated or deeply resistance against the flow of experience. And we'll look at that in these practical um, exercises. So we last time also looked at a principal way in which the Buddha talked about uh, emptiness, which was to say that we can look at the components of experience and we don't find a separate self. And we can identify this flow of experience and Last time we looked at this model of the skandhas or the khandhas, which is a model of five components of experience, which when we actually look closely at experience, the claim is that this is all there is. This is all we find. And there's the, the component of form, particularly related to the senses of uh, seeing objects, having um, sense experiences like hearing, smelling, touching, and so forth. One whole dimension or one whole component of experience. The second one, the evaluative sense of feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And how, and I think we know how in meditation we're encouraged just to stay with that sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral and to see how much of our thinking and stories and so forth um, take off from a sense of pleasant or unpleasant. You know, we have a, uh, we're sitting there and uh, maybe, maybe there's an unpleasant sensation in the back. And I'm sitting there and be, the instruction is just stay with that unpleasant. But often we might have a story that goes, oh, I should have done, I should have done yoga before the meditation session. Yeah, where should I do yoga? Maybe, well, there's that nice new studio over there. Nah, they charge too much. Maybe this other place. Yeah, or, you know, maybe meditation is just not for me. Maybe, maybe I should just be full-time yoga with my spiritual practice. And, um, well, I don't know. I like meditation. Oh, my back really. <laughs> Anyone familiar with, with this? So that we're encouraged to see how... Plus the, the play of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral just leads to this, often to a proliferation 
of thoughts, emotions, stories, narratives, and so forth. And the, the third is perception. And last time we looked at how perception is based on memory of objects. And, and our perception is not something that's somehow given with the nature of things, but that in every culture we learn how to perceive certain objects and different cultures do it differently, not to mention different species doing it differently. So it really makes us wonder what's really here and makes us see also our experience as a little bit more of a construction that we, than we might ordinarily think, that we live in this constructed, conventional reality. And part of the aim of practice is actually to look at that and to deconstruct it and to see what's most basically there and see how all of our constructions are either helpful or sometimes lead to suffering. And the, f- the, f- the fourth being what's called volitional formations, thoughts and emotions, and the fifth consciousness. And so we are encouraged, and this is one way that we'll come to in a moment, to see uh, emptiness by seeing a flow of these different components of experience and seeing where there's a kind of fixation of the flow. That was the guided meditation that I gave at the end of the sitting to see if we can just be with that flow, have a sense of the impermanence, see where the mind gets fixed on something or uh, proliferates on the basis of a a certain experience. And so it's interesting to ask why we actually tend to think of things and objects and selves being solid. And there are at least two major reasons that are just there in the um, kind of the ordinary nature of experience. I think one of them has to do with language, that the way we use language tends to make us think that especially in Western languages uh, where we have this sense of objects and of discrete objects and we have languages that have a strong subject-object structure, you know, noun and verb, right? Not all human languages have that. A lot of human languages don't have a subject-object construction. Ours do. And we te- that tends to influence us to... to fixate in certain ways that are not necessarily the way things actually are. Language plays a huge role, the fact that we name things, and again, that this is helpful and useful in a conventional way, but we tend to get, tend to take our language as indicating reality. And that's problematic, and that's what we actually can explore in meditation as we go deeper. We can, we can in a sense, get beneath the conceptual level of things. Another strong influence on us thinking that there are these separate independent objects is the the use of sight. Just our vision tends to, much more than the other senses, uh, construct the world according to there being discrete objects. Think of the way the world would be if hearing was your predominant sight, your predominant sense, I should say. If hearing was your predominant sense, or if sensations of the body were your predominant sense, how would you construct the world? It might be quite different. And so we're influenced. We're influenced in that way. 
And we also looked at how there is a sense of compassion that as we go deeper into emptiness, compassion arises quite naturally because in a sense we see that there is a tremendous amount of struggle around the sense of a separate self and a lot of suffering connected with it. Essentially, the claim of the Buddha is that there is no separate self, that we're much more in a permeable, interconnected reality than we think, and yet we're conditioned to try to find happiness by manipulating the world to have pleasant experiences and avoid unpleasant experiences, (coughs) and to have some kind of sense of permanence and to do it for myself. And in a sense, given emptiness, that's doomed to failure. (laughs) That whole project that many of us spend a lot of our time on is in a sense doomed to failure, certainly ultimate failure, but often temporary failure. And so there's, when we see more clearly into emptiness, we see how there is this tremendous amount of suffering based on this, almost like this construction of self. It's probably easiest to see um, sometimes, with, you know, maybe for countries, you know, the, the wonderful uh, Buddhist philosopher David Loy, who has a wonderful book, which I was going to read from, but I think I won't today. It's called Money, Sex, War, and Karma, Notes for a Buddhist Revolution. It's in the bookstore. And he, he has a wonderful way of speaking. He talks about not just the ego, but the we-go, <laughs> the collective self. And when we look to the kind of the collective ego of countries, then we can kind of see, God, this is a you know, nationalism and so forth. It's a massive construction, tremendous suffering connected with it. It's imaginary in a way, right? You know, and hopefully we're on the way to a post-national world. Maybe, you know, maybe current crisis will take us there, you know, part of the benefit of crises. Not, not to be too glib about that. Uh, and so we can see that there's suffering in ourselves when we grab hold too tightly. And I gave last time just very kind of down-to-earth examples of where I'm sitting and I have uh, what I would call knee pain. And I can either really tense around it and suffer some, or I can learn to relax with the flow of unpleasant experiences. And so no surprise that one of the powerful applications of meditation is in the medical field, because people do tend to tense around pain, physical or emotional. And with meditation, we can learn to relax more and, of course, to do what is helpful in a given situation. But if there is sort of irreducible physical or emotional pain, how can we be with that? Something that we learn here. And how can we respond skillfully and not somehow continually tense and with emotional pain perhaps blame ourselves, blame others, proliferate on the basis of what's unpleasant. Very concrete ways that we can see that there's suffering when we, when we sort of fixate the, the flow of experience. And that ultimately, true understanding of emptiness really needs to express compassion and vice versa. That with 
um, the danger would be that with something like emptiness, it can get sometimes intellectual or just be conceptual or not be fully integrated with compassion. There's an old Zen story of, a, of a, a student who was just walking around saying, it's all empty, it's all empty, it's all empty. And the Zen teacher suspected that he might have a more superficial understanding of emptiness. <laughs> and so he went up to him and started hitting him on the head with a stick, you know, and saying, it's all empty, is it? It's all empty, is it? And he kept on hitting him and eventually said, don't, don't do that, don't do that. You know, we, don't, we don't use these kind of methods here at Spirit Rock. <laughs> but um, but there, there are a lot of stories like that where there can be this uh, more conceptual sense of emptiness or we can have a kind of removed sense. Oh, yes, it's all empty. It's just, just phenomena happening because of this vast web of causal conditions, and I'm kind of in this privileged middle-class life, and I'll just watch it go, and you know, and so forth. It's a danger. It's a danger in in our practice, and so can really ask if I'm more towards the emptiness side or wisdom side, might want to develop more in the compassion. And similarly, there can be an imbalance on the compassion side, and where we most typically somehow don't, we get too caught somehow with the suffering. It can be beautiful hearts, beautiful open hearts, but we somehow don't have the wisdom dimension that could manifest in equanimity. And so this would result, let's say, if we're in the helping professions or working with people or, I don't know, in, the, in, in parenting, could result in getting uh, really off-center when they're suffering. Or in the helping professions, could, get, could lead to burnout some lack of the wisdom dimension, sort of too caught with the compassion in some way. And so this, you know, this uh, wonderful Tibetan uh, understanding, it said that, I quoted last time, of all the teachings, the ultimate is emptiness of which compassion is the very essence. It is like a very powerful medicine, a panacea, which can cure every disease in the world. So I want to on that basis, talk about three practical ways to experience uh, emptiness and to see also how that uh, opens into compassion. And the first is the sense of flow. Maybe I'll say what they are first because I want to explore them. And the first one we explored in the meditation, but I would encourage you to explore that (coughs) at home and um, driving across the Richmond San Rafael Bridge and other, other settings. Uh, the first is having that sense more of this flow of experience and, and seeing where the flow gets fixated. The second is more generally um, opening to what we might call flow experiences generally. The first, the first kind is more of an inner experience and the second is more of this total experience of what we could call flow experience. And the third is... Uh, developing a sense of in, more of a sense of interconnection. That's what I want to explore for the rest of the time and have some sense that we can uh, work with those in a practical way. So we looked in the uh, last part of the meditation session at how to just be with more of a sense of flow in our inner experience, in our, in our meditation. How do we, can we somehow relax more into that flow and I have to say that when we actually practice this, 
it's helpful first to have come to some degree of calmness in our minds, that this, this requires a little bit of a settled experience. So if, if you were doing this in your, in your sitting, I might recommend doing it at the end, the last 10 minutes, or maybe the last half of a sitting, and work to establish that subtleness or stability of attention first. And then you can kind of uh, just set back and say, let me just watch the flow as if there's just this movie coming at us almost, or this set of experiences coming at us. Sometimes we talk about the practice of choiceless awareness, which is one way to to uh, express this, where we have enough ability to just be present to the flow and we just let experience come as it is without choosing one thing or the other. So there can be sensations, then we notice thoughts or emotions or hearing, and we do, it just becomes like this river that we can work with. And that's, I think, one very ordinary way of approaching emptiness because we can see that there's just this, this open flow, and we can watch where there's fixation. We can watch where there tends to be a sense of rigid eye or strong eye or rigidly grabbling, grabbing onto the object, and we can notice that. And that's, um, that is, a, I think, a direct exploration and cultivation of, of, of emptiness. We can also see where we suffer. We can have a special tuning in to moments of suffering and notice the extent to which it, it is connected with resistance to the flow. It's something we can really, can really explore. And so um, that's, a pra- that's a very basic practice that we can do. And we can do that at home. You can do that. Um, the example came to me of being at the dentist. Maybe that's because I was at the dentist twice last week <laughs> and had, you know, shots with those two-foot needles. <laughs> you know those two-foot-long needles? So am I, am I fixating on the, the length of the needle, perhaps? And so, but at the dentist, just be with the flow of challenging... <laughs> challenging moments. So just to be with that, that flow, we can see where we fixate. One technique you might try that I heard from Joseph Goldstein is to use language skillfully. Instead of saying, I'm feeling this, use language in this way to say, there is anger. There is sensation. And you can almost coach yourself as you're watching the flow to use language in a way which doesn't have that sense of uh, um, I as reference point. An advanced expression of this would be to do this when there's some conflict or difficulty. Can you actually relax into the flow? Because in conflicts or difficulty, we tend to very quickly have that polarized sense of I and other, or I and crisis situation, you know, and things tend to get fixated. And so advanced practice would be, can I relax when I'm in a conflict and just notice, ah, 
there's anger occurring. Ah, my mind is going towards petty thoughts of revenge. <laughs> Rather than be quite so identified with the strategic plan. You know? And so we can work, work in that way. Uh, and so that's one major way, really, that we can, can explore and practice emptiness. It's really being with the flow, relaxing to the flow, in meditation, right now even, in daily life, seeing where there's any tendency to, to fixate. Very ordinary way to approach that sense of openness or emptiness. Uh, a second way is really related to that. It's a kind of sense of that flow experience that we looked at last time. That sense of when am I most fully engaged without self-consciousness? And what I love is that this is also, I think, a very accessible way, the second way, of experiencing something that I think is completely close to the sense of emptiness in a way that's accessible to us. It doesn't require being in meditation retreat for 10 years. It's something that I think we experience all the time and that we, I think all three of these approaches to emptiness are Uh, in a sense, down-to-earth and practical and accessible. So this second way we talked about last time is looking at those times when I was most fully engaged in an activity, when I was so engaged that I had no sense of self. And again, it could be being in an activity. It could be being with friends where we feel so close that I can totally be myself and I I don't have to so much defend. Should I reveal this part? Should I reveal that part? Should I be this way? And so forth. We don't have to be quite so strategic as we sometimes are about um, our moment-to-moment experience. And we can um, experience this. Sometimes they're peak experiences or peak moments. And I thought I would read, last time I gave the example of sports and uh, music as, as giving these wonderful examples. Uh, in sports, there is this, can be a sense of what's sometimes called being in the zone, you know, where, we, where the, uh, the athlete will be so much in the zone that things will be almost occur in slow motion. I thought I'd read, I, don't, I didn't read this last time, I thought I would read something by, uh, let me see if I can find this, by the great uh, basketball player, uh, Bill Russell, who doesn't get quoted so often in Dharma talks, but I think he has a lot to offer. Bill Russell is one of the great centers, played with the Boston Celtics. How many people have no Bill Russell? Okay, about less than half. Okay, okay. So consider this broadening of your Dharma education. So. This is, this is uh, Bill Russell talking about the in-the-zone experiences. And I think this is a, a sense of emptiness here. Every so often, the Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game and would be magical. The feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. Interesting. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. At the special level, all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. 
Even before the other team brought the ball inbounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, except that I knew everything would change if I did. My premonitions would be consistently correct, and I always felt then that I not only knew all the Celtics by heart, but also all the opposing players, and that they all knew me. There have been many times in my career when I felt moved or joyful, but these were the moments when I had chills pulsing up and down my spine. And I think we experience that at different moments. It could be in nature, could be with people we're very close to, could be in this activity. One other reading I thought I would give from uh, Chuang Tzu in the Taoist tradition. This is a great ideal to have this sense of, and they actually use words which could be translated as emptiness also in the Taoist tradition. So if you read Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu in the Chinese Taoist tradition, you'll find something very similar. So here is Chuang Tzu uh, talking about a woodcarver, a kind of an artist who in that tradition, had to make himself empty in order to do good art. Interesting. And here's what, here's what he said. King, the master carver, made a bell stand of precious wood. When it was finished, all who saw it were astounded. They said it must be the work of spirits. The prince of law said to the master carver, what is your secret? King replied, I am only a workman. I have no secret. There is only this. When I began to think about the work you commanded, I guarded my spirit, did not expend it on trifles that were not to the point. I fasted in order to set my heart at rest. After three days fasting, I had forgotten gain and success. After five days, I had forgotten praise or criticism. After seven days, I had forgotten my body with all its limbs. By this time, all thought of your highness and of the court had faded away. All that might distract me from the work had vanished. I was collected in the single thought of the bell stand. Then I went to the forest to see the trees in their own natural state. When the right tree appeared before my eyes, the bell stand also appeared in it, clearly beyond doubt. All I had to do was to put forth my hand and begin. If I had not met this particular tree, there would have been no bell stand at all. What happened? My own collected thought encountered the hidden potential in the wood. From this live encounter came the work which you ascribe to the spirits. And you might just think now, when were times that you felt that kind of fullness? Just take a moment to go inside. When did you feel that kind of a fullness of activity? And there might be just a few that come to mind. An activity, being with people, being in nature. Where you felt that fullness without self-consciousness in which there was this, in which something almost uh, told you that this was a different way to be. I thought I might just ask uh, 
Would anyone like to describe an experience and see if you can just do it like in one sentence or something? It's, of course, a, um, just so we can hear a few in a short time. Would anyone like to share like in one sentence or so something, George? Uh, I'm a musician and uh, very often uh, when I play uh, improvised jazz and at times I get in th that zone where uh, it's just, it's flowing, something's flowing through me. The notes <coughs> just come out without me having much to do with it. Yeah. So. Yeah, music, lack of self-consciousness, something coming through you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another example, and please. Uh, dancing. Dancing, yeah. And then also when I do, uh, I play like an art part. Clay and the artwork, just that full immersion without mm -hmm. a sense of self, yeah. Other, please, yeah. Yeah, I was in Yosemite last week, and um, mm -hmm. I climbed to the top of Sentinel Dome and looked at the valley. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, there was no self. It was just feeling mm -hmm. a part of well, all of that. Sense of interconnection at Yosemite. Yeah, Ruth, did you? I was in Bhutan and had to go to a festival that started at four in the morning up a very high hill. And I felt at the bottom of the hill that I just needed to be at the top. And somehow, 10 minutes later, I was up at the top of this hill. I had just, my body had just deteriorated mm -hmm. up the hill. Mm -hmm. And somehow it told you that this was an unusual experience. Oh. Yeah, just very yeah. unusual. Maybe uh, three more, these three, and then we'll, then we'll move on. Please, Marty. Once I was driving my car and listening to the Bach Magnificat. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter whether the reception or anything, uh, it was just ethereal. And I just, it was just an amazing experience that transcended the mechanics of it. I was just there with the music. Something, and these things come without bidding, this experience of music and the driving, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Please. Yeah, uh, every once in a while when I'm riding my horse, a feeling of real connectedness, like we're just mm -hmm. one organism. Yeah. Feeling of oneness, riding the horse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Please. I worked with migrants on Gary Elijah land, and, and I began to feel such an immersion in alignment with the land and the other land. The growth, the whole process of life, through these people, through this work. Yeah, just this sense of deep connection, and maybe a kind of what um, fullness, appropriateness of the action, just like. The whole, yeah. Yeah, fullness, almost like, sounds like almost like archetypal type of experience. Uh, something as if it's just this, not me, but the somehow life living through me, something like that. I think I will just, uh, maybe there'll be time when we have questions. I think I'll just want, I actually just want to end by mentioning one other way that this, sense of um, emptiness can be explored. And we can also ask in each of them, where does compassion come in? Because I think with the first kind of exploration of emptiness, being with that flow of inner experience, we can also see where we get stuck or fixated. And we can look at that and see that as we deepen in our sense of emptiness, we can also appreciate how when we don't have that sense of emptiness, there can be suffering. And so they can start to get connected. Similarly, from these, from these um, very strong experiences, uh, I call them flow experiences, 
we, can, we may have a sense of compassion developing both for ourselves and others because we, we may have a sense that this is almost how life was meant to be lived. And we can be aware that we call them peak experiences. <laughs> you know, we don't really um, go there that often, you know. And one way to understand what we're doing in meditation and in the, in the sense of practice is to have those kind of peak experiences be around more, <laughs> you know, to have them, to move towards having them be stabilized uh, as it was sometimes said uh, in some of the literature on psychology, not as altered states, but as altered traits, <laughs> more stabilized. That's the direction we go, so that that sense of vividness and connection is more, more ordinary. And so we may have that sense of compassion arising with, this, with these peak experiences for ourselves, uh, you know, oh, I want to be there more. Or just this, what is, how do I live my, the rest of my life? Or maybe compassion for others. You know, sometimes we come out of that and just see the, kind of the mad flurry of activity, right, um, in, in society. And the third sense of emptiness that we can explore, and I think because of time, I'll just mention this briefly, and I'll do, I'll do the exercises that I was planning to do next time. I had a set of exercises to cultivate interconnection, but I want to give, give it enough time. So I'll just mention this and invite you to look for those sense of, of interconnection. And uh, in the work of the great philosopher of emptiness, Nargajana, who lived about 200 in the common era, he talks about how emptiness is the same as dependent arising. We could say, in a sense, that he said a synonym for emptiness is um, uh, almost like interconnection and and interdependence. Let me see if I have, yeah. And he he said that, so he, he cautioned against having the emptiness be this narrow sense. He said, when emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. So emptiness is connected with this sense of the interdependence of things. And so we can cultivate more of a sense of interdependence um, in a few different ways. One is when we really immerse ourselves in one so-called object. We'll do an exercise in about two weeks, but we really immerse ourselves sometimes in an object, we sometimes merge with that object. We have a sense of interconnection, like that example with the horse. You know, that we can have when we are fully with another person or an object, so-called a tree, uh, a painting, when we fully immerse ourselves in that, there will tend to be a sense of interconnection. That's one way to again, uh, move into that sense of interconnection. Clearly from uh, the sense of care and love and connection and coming through the heart with uh, another being, with um, a tree, uh, another person, a painting, whatever, that's also a way of having a sense of interconnection. And maybe I'll just mention one of these techniques that I was going to give, uh, and then I'll then I'll I'll close. We also 
can have a sense of the way that an object actually is involved in this vast causal network. So take right now, take, this is one exercise I was going to do, I'll just do this brief one. Take any object that's close at hand, a pen, um, you can take as your object your shawl, your pants, I'll take this striker, and take this object, and this, actually I'll give this the first two of these exercises. The first exercise to cultivate interconnection is just to give an ordinary object sustained attention. So just to be with it, use the different senses. Feel it, you can smell it. Just be with it. And you, some of you can do at home. It was that sense of just being with an ordinary object that we typically take for granted, that is, is typically just there to meet my needs. And we give it attention. This also works for people who we take for granted. <laughs> so just take, uh, and then I'm going to go through these a little quickly so we have time for a discussion, but just be with that ordinary object in a sustained way. In a sense, the act of attention can break through that sense of duality of subject and object. We tend to feel more connected. A second exercise is, and this uses the imagination some, is to, with your ordinary object, imagine all the set of causes and conditions that brought this object to the present moment. So, you know, I take this striker and I, you know, I imagine the tree and the forest where it was growing and the people who made it and the factory and the truck and the designer and the, the way it was, it was matched after this striker from China from uh, 953 AD. And, and you know, I imagine China uh, over a thousand years ago and I just have this sense of this vast network. So use your imagination. Of course, some of the information you won't know, but use your imagination right now just for a minute or two to have that sense of a vast web of causes and conditions. could do that longer. <laughs> and you can do that at home, but I wanted to give that to you. One friend said, doing that exercise um, a few times a day may give you a deeper sense of emptiness than meditating for five years. I don't know if I've got the exact quotation there, but, but it's, it can be quite profound. You, did you have a sense of how that's shifting perception some, to see ourselves as in this vast network of causes and conditions, a little bit different than that striker. Here it is. And so forth. So, we have that sense of this vast net of 
interpenetrating causes and conditions. And I think I'll just close with uh, three short readings. Because eventually, when we have that sense of interconnection, it also tends to engender compassion as we enter into it more. We care about others. We care about the objects. I remember once when I was in a, when I had surgery and a general anesthetic, which actually uh, I had, um, well, this was related to the dentist. (laughs) And I had this surgery with general anesthetic, which a friend of mine who works with the medical field, the field of kind of alternative medicine says, people don't actually acknowledge it, but going under general anesthetic is actually pretty close to clinical death. And sometimes things open up. And I had this, I was kind of in an altered state for about 10 days after the surgery. And when I came out of the surgery, I looked at everything as fragile, because I knew I was. And I looked at cups, and I looked at um, plates, not to mention people. And I had a sense of compassion. Even I remember just staring at this cup that was right near my uh, hospital bed and just looking at it. And there can be that sense of compassion which arises from the sense of interconnection. From the seventh century in China, Tushun, about how everything is interpenetrating. Maybe I'll just end with this. First, one includes all and enters all. Second, all includes one and enters one. Third, one includes one and enters one. Fourth, all includes all and enters all. They interpenetrate one another without any obstruction. So let's just sit for 30 seconds for a minute. So a little time for questions or reflections, noticings from those exercises. Please, (coughs) Kelly, please. I was just thinking as far as like the cap, I was looking at my little door, and I traveled actually for an extended period of time and I didn't have a lot of stuff. And so like a little book or a sweater. Yeah. I had one sweater. I loved my sweater. It kept me warm. Yeah. And, you know, when I left, I probably had 30 sweaters, and I didn't care about sweaters. Yeah. I think we're so completely overwhelmed, it's hard to see anything. Yeah. You know, when we give stuff away and come into a quieter place, we can experience things and, like, really see something. Beautiful. Thanks. That value of simplicity, non-distractedness, to, to enter into this way of seeing. Yeah. Please, yeah. 
Cynthia. Go to um, the Mariposa Grove in yeah. um, Yosemite, which is the gun sequoia grove. Yeah. I feel the trees for some reason there. And, and what I love to do, especially, is to go up and just kind of lay against one of those trees. Yeah. Yeah. Really to connect with, with the trees. We, yeah, it would be very nice to do that more in our retreats, actually. I know I've done, personally done that sometimes as practices to particularly trees. You know. And we, yeah, it'd be interesting. Because in, in the Theravada tradition, the sense of emptiness tends to be more internal. In the Mahayana uh, tradition tends to be both include both inner and outer. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to say also yeah. that Galen Clark, who just was the first, uh, uh, I guess, uh, European person who found those trees, he had been given like a year to live. Hmm. Well. And he made camp there and lived, and, and he was one of the people that protected the trees. It's like protect the trees from being gnawed. Oh. And he lived for another 40 years. Oh. <laughs> 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 we, better, we better keep this guy around. Yeah, yeah, interconnection. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Please. Yeah. Um, what I kept thinking of when you were talking was when I was with my brother when he died, hmm. and I put my hand on his heart, like it felt just very strong and intuitive to do that. And it was probably a good two, three hours Yeah. And I was able to really, like all the elements and everything was so transparent to me. Yeah. It was, it was actually, it was actually like later on having the thought of like with all the sadness and the grief, like that was fine. I could have stayed there. <laughs> you know, like I could have stayed there. Yeah. These are all just thoughts there. And, you know, it was just an interesting um, experience that I guess I didn't expect. Yeah. Remind me of your name? Eileen. Eileen, that um, very, very powerful, that um, situation, maybe of need, urgency, whatever we call it, really bringing you into that capacity mm -hmm. to be there without self, and, in a sense, and just be fully with that experience. That um, How many may have had some similar experience in maybe a, a situation of need and Maybe some of you, yeah, so it's, it's shared by a lot of people and magical. And, and then when at a certain point other emotions came in, right? Mm -hmm. Other feelings. Later. Later. Yeah. It was like almost a stunned feeling for about, you know, I mean, there was actually just that feeling of being stunned. And then almost when I came back or something, it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's like having to just readjust to. Sort of the reality more yeah 
that it wasn't just energy, that there was a relationship. You know that at least. Other dimensions, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and powerful. Please. Yeah. Or emptiness. That's right, yeah. Um, I just, I, um, I, I study linguistics and I speak other languages and I tried my hand at translating things. And I'm sh- I was in India and I got invited to where Dalai Lama was giving a talk about Shunyaka. About, yeah. And the terminology was enormous, like way over my head. Yeah. Yeah. Self that's anxious or angry or like futurizing or like thinking about the past. Yeah. It's empty of that, but it's full of some bigger self that's connected. To that's that. great. Yeah. yeah. And that's actually connected. I didn't mention some of the um, etymology, but the actual word shun uh, I think has two basic senses. One is a sense of empty or something not present. But the other sense is connected almost with pregnancy. It it means swollen. And so there's, I think, both senses of emptiness and fullness in a creative way. And so so that doesn't get captured very well by the English word emptiness. But there is, I think, the meaning is both that of, um, you know, it's being used to say a lack of a typical way of distorting, <laughs> yeah. as well as the fullness of what interconnection or creative interpenetration. Yeah, both are there. So that that's that's helpful because it's really a better way to think of emptiness, and the the word doesn't quite do it using the English word emptiness. Uh, and although you know the actually the same. Issues are there in the Asian languages. You know, people thought, oh, emptiness is just negative. But it's uh, but better for us maybe to maybe to think uh, openness, interconnection, or maybe just to have uh, this, um, like you were saying, empty, emptiness slash fullness. <laughs> maybe that's doesn't roll off the tongue, but it's. Um, <laughs> Last one, and then we'll, and then we'll get ready for next time. Yeah. This is just a comment. It, it's like um, when when Buddhism was translated uh, from the Pali, I think a lot of the it was very misleading because it, it was like wasn't it nineteenth century, eighteenth century English yeah. translating it? So it like the whole thing about desire and how that was bad. It, the That's way right. they translated it, I think for a long time we really didn't understand what they were saying. That's right. We we've needed uh, the the comment was that uh, a lot of the core terms in Buddhist tradition, uh, and I think the same goes for uh, other Asian traditions, and I think probably it would also go for indigenous traditions as well. 
but Buddhists particularly were translated, a lot of the translations were end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, by uh, scholars coming out of Victorian England with um, whatever influences from that culture there were. And there was a strong need to kind of see Buddhism as being like a proper Englishman to some extent. And I'm joking, there's some truth to that. You know, there was a sense that, oh, this is this wonderful tradition that's kind of like us, <laughs> and hence we'll use the words, <laughs> you know, kind of like a, a well-bred English person. <laughs> I think, I hope that's not, hope that's a not unwise speech. But, um, and so we really do need uh, our own generation of translators, which is happening. You know, there's, uh, there's a whole way that new translations are required and even the word like this maybe we'll have a different emptiness we'll have maybe we'll have a different word in 20 years or 40 years you know a different understanding um, um, so let me suggest for sylvia will be here next week i will be communicating to her that we've been covering emptiness and compassion uh, she's actually teaching a retreat up the hill right now and I'll be going up there Sunday, but I'll, I think I'll, we'll see her later today. I'll tell her about emptiness and compassion and some of what we've explored. And my intention is to continue the theme in two weeks, and I will do some of the practical exercises in two weeks that I didn't do today. And I'll have a chance to do some that we did do in a little more, a little more depth. So my encouragement for practice is to look at those three ways to explore emptiness and compassion. First, emptiness as an inner flow. See if you can, when the mind is somewhat settled, drop back to that, a way of being more with that inner flow, with the, like a river, an impermanent flow, continually changing, and see what gets in the way of it, and see how much there is any sense of self that gets in the way. That's the first. Second is to, maybe in, it's hard to produce those kinds of peak experiences that we were talking about, but sometimes you can let yourself just go more fully into an experience. Let yourself have, you know, say, let me, I will just give myself over to this activity. And it could be that it becomes a practice, like if my mind's going somewhere else, I just say, thank you. We'll go back, go back to the experience, like meditation, really. Continually coming back. That's something we can practice in activities during, during the uh, next two weeks. And then thirdly, can work with that sense of interconnection. And you can do those two experience, those two practices that I gave. One, just that kind of really being present within immersing yourself. And an object could be a person, just really being present with someone. You know, and there, there are some other practices that maybe I can bring in two weeks that can help that with a person. But with an object, just being really fully with that object. And then uh, secondly, if you want to do that exercise on imagining the network of causes and conditions and just being, you know, you know be there on whatever, uh, in your car and take five minutes to reflect on the causes and conditions which brought the car into existence, you know, whatever. Henry Ford and Nissan and steel and and uh, you know and, and explore that and we'll 
we can come back and um, come back in two weeks and continue. So let's just sit to close for about uh, 30 seconds or a minute. One compassion practice that we do at the end of each sitting is called Dedication of Meridans, where we remember that we do these explorations and this practice not just for ourselves but also for others, and that we are deeply, deeply intermingled with all of being. And we offer the fruits of our time together out into the world for the benefit and healing of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.